Welcome to episode 36 of the world-famous Tetraboard Zoology podcast. I'm Richard Bacon. Who's that? <laughs> he's, he's a radio DJ. Is he? Okay. Yeah. I meant to say I'm Kevin Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a different other chap. Yeah. Yeah. I'm nobody, so let's continue. Right. Uh, in this thrilling episode, um, we have some FU, which FU. for new listeners, hello new listeners, that stands for follow-up, it's not rude, and then we have some exciting, thrilling news, and uh, now, today is the 28th of November, the year 2014, um, and uh, is that some kind of like American holiday? No, I don't know. Uh, Okay. Dinosaur um, Dinosaur Massacre Day or something like this? I don't know. But, of course, dinosaurs are all around us right now because of um, Jurassic World, which uh, the trailer premiered a couple of days ago, and we'll be talking about that a little bit, uh, as well as another movie which we've both seen, Howard the Duck. <laughs> 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 it makes a surprise cameo appearance at the end of uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, which is now out on DVD. Uh, no, Interstellar. Um, <clears throat> so, 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 so we're going to work through the agenda, I guess, then. Yeah. So, right. yep. Right. So, F-U. F-U, uh, hyenas. Yeah. Well, well, two things. Do you, do you have anything that you want to cover and follow up? Uh, no, because I don't get any follow up. Or I might, okay. but I don't read it. Right, well, first thing to follow up is when I was talking about freehold diving and quoting Dr. Krakus Valsavian, who was sending messages from his underwater layer off the coast of Canada, there was a really hilarious bit when, if you listen back to it, I say, if you dive with uh, empty clubs. And what I meant was, if you dive with empty <laughs> lungs. <laughs> so people that are going back and listening to episode 35, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about there. I think I got my words mixed up. Okay. Uh, it's because I was talking about the clubs that Krakus Valsavian was involved in, the free diving clubs. So, mm-hmm. yeah, crucial stuff. Yeah, F you on hyenas. Was it last episode we were talking about, was it the last one, something to do with the history of um, dogs and hyenas? Mm-hmm. It was covered at some length. Yep. And um, I screwed up a little bit because I said that a lot of the, um, uh, I, I basically said that outside the living hyena lineages, all the other hyena lineages, none of them persisted beyond the end of the late Miocene. Now, that was, of course, a deliberate error in order to give a hyena specialist a good reason to, um, to write in with lots more information. And I'm very pleased to say that Doug Ravinsky, thank you, Douglas, uh, Douglas uh, works on hyenas, I believe, I believe for his PhD, um, and specifically works on Chasmopolthetes, which I mentioned because it's an old-world hyena that is that got into the New World, the only hyena that got into North America. So it's not true that it um, gets to the late Miocene and goes extinct because Chasmopolthetes, the name, by the way, is really cool. It means something like he who saw the canyon, I think, um, is a cursorial hyena, which I mentioned last time. Um, 
it persists into the Pliocene and even into the early Pleistocene. It was an extremely successful specios uh, hyena during the Pliocene. There's something like nine species. So, you know, this is a, um, yeah, there's lots of these animals. You shouldn't, you know, when we think of like fossil genera, we tend to think of them just like singletons, don't we? But, you know, there's a whole cluster of species here uh, occurring across Eurasia, Africa, um, and, yeah, North America as well. Um, Douglas has given me quite a lot of information. Not going to read it all, but um, that's the basics of it. Yeah, survives into the early Pleistocene. And um, really cool thing as well that he also reminds me is that there was an endemic Sardinian um, island endemic dwarf within Chasmopolthetes called Chasmopolthetes Meliae. I don't know how you say it, but um, that's all. That's all cool stuff. So thank you very much, Douglas. That's that's cool. So I think that's it for FU. All right. You need, you need to talk for a minute while I do this. Okay. Talky talk, 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 talky talk, talk, talky talk, talk. Okay. So what we're going to do now, we're going to do uh, news from the world of Darren and John. Yeah. So cassowary paper, which I, I have not <clears> seen yet. Tell us about right. that. So this, yeah, this is a new paper that I have out with my colleague Richard Perrin, something we've been working on for some years. Okay, cassowaries, everybody knows what cassowaries are. Many people have seen them in captivity, probably not in the wild, although, you know, there's a few places um, in Queensland, Cape York Peninsula in particular, where they're fairly easy to go and see. But, um, you know, they're in the rainforests in the far east of Australia as well as on New Guinea. But how much is, you know, you would not believe how little is known about these birds and how little work has been done. And think of all the questions that we might have about them. Now, we know they're close relatives of emus, so what's the nature of the relationship between emus and cassowaries? When did the two split? And are the unusual features of cassowaries unique to the cassowary lineage or were they present in the emu-cassowary common ancestor? Why do cassowaries have that thing on their head? It's called a casque. And what is its anatomy like? You know, how is it constructed internally? What is its function if it has one? What were the evolutionary pressures that led to its evolution? Why have they got this naked, carinculated, brightly coloured skin on the neck and head? Why have they got those wattles? What do they actually eat? What do they do? How do they live? What, how did they get to New Guinea? How many species are there? How many subspecies are there? What is their biogeographical history? And so on and so forth. There's probably like 60 questions you could come up with about cassowaries. You look at the cassowary literature and essentially none of it has been answered. Now, there was a... A cluster of studies done in the early 1900s, predominantly by Walter Rothschild, who kept cassowaries at Tring in Hertfordshire in in England. And uh, he was obsessed with these birds. And, you know, I've written about this a few times on Tetrapod Zoology. He he got them imported and um, had lots of them stuffed when they died and got loads of skins and skeletons preserved as well. And he was a hyper splitter. So he named, I don't know, I can't remember now, something like 65 different species and subspecies based on individual colour and size variation and so on. Came up with this, you know, speciose view of cassowaries. Then after that time, after about the 1920s, people say there probably aren't that many and they need to be, you know, we need to reduce the number down. So they reduced it down to three or four species, but they never sorted out this whole mess of the subspecies. And it's really confusing. There's loads of different variants on loads of different islands around New Guinea and in between New Guinea and Australia. And um, it's thought that people moved them around a bit and people traded in them and took them to places where they couldn't have gotten by themselves, like Saram and Borneo, the Aru Islands and so on. It's really confusing. So so this whole mess of how many kinds of cassowaries there are, how many taxa there are, that hasn't been answered. Then the 
aspects of the anatomy. What is the case actually, cons- you know, how is it built? What bones does it involve? And then what's it for? That hasn't been answered either. So we try to look at all these things and tie them all together in a sort of story about the origins, evolution, biography, and so on of cassowaries. Mm-hmm. We got cassowary heads, dead ones, sliced them in half. And um, in this new paper, which we published in Historical Biology, um, which is uh, one of the best venues for a paper like this, and you know, the fact that I'm on the editorial board is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. There's nothing, nothing to do with the fact that the paper, <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm serious. I figured this was the best journal for the paper. It was either that or Peer J, but at the time I couldn't raise the money to, to uh, get another author on a, on a Peer J thing because you have to pay a lifetime subscription to publish there. Um, could have tried... Why did I not try plus one? can't remember. Anyway, um, structure and function of the cassowary's case and its implications for cassowary history, biology and evolution. Um, yeah, email me or tweet me or whatever if you want the PDF and I'll send it to you. I haven't yet put it online. I will do later on today because it's not open access, but I shall make it so. And yeah, sectioned cassowary heads, cassowary casks, right? And there's two papers on the internal anatomy of the cassowary case, two papers from the whole of history. And one of them says, not really sure what's going on inside there. It looks a bit like it's a hard plastic of some form. And the other one said, we found a bit of sludge inside. We don't really know what it was. <laughs> and it's like, you kidding? That's all that's, that's all that's there. So if you section them, and we've got these figures in the, the paper, you find that the case, okay, so there's, there's a keratinous thing on top. Technically, the keratinous thing is the case. And um, <clears throat> it's sort of rubbery. It's got like a flaky kind of, you know, horny outer surface, but it's slightly soft and squidgy and, and it will flex. It'll bend if you squeeze it. Then if you take that off, which you can do in a dead one, you can actually just slip it off. There's a bony core underneath, which is the bony case. What is that formed from? Well, again, nobody really knows which bones are involved because nobody's studied the ontogeny, the, gro- the growth changes during cassowary to see what happens as the chick matures. But um, it seems that inflated portions of the frontal bones basically grow up in these kind of like, you know, this dome-like thing full of like, thousands of bony spicules, little tiny trabeculae, little strut-like things, really fragile, but with a giant space at the back of the case. So it's mostly hollow, apart from this mass of spicules at the front. So we, we describe all that. Now, the next thing to do is to do sexy stuff like, you know, CT scanning and everything. That is in progress already, mm-hmm. preliminary reports, but I can't talk about that too much yet. So we've got some of this anatomical stuff. What's the case for? Well, we haven't done anything like, you know, biomechanical modeling or, or you know, we certainly haven't been out watching wild cassowaries because <laughs> that, that is a whole world of hurt. Um, that's like years of work yes. and you have to go and live in New Guinea. Which is probably why it hasn't been done. That's probably why it hasn't been done. There's a guy who has done a lot of work on the ecology of cassowaries, Andrew Mack, who wrote this book, Searching for Peck Peck, which I think I mentioned a long time ago on the podcast. Mm. And, um, and this whole book, he's written this whole book about cassowaries. So I got it thinking, oh, cool, it's going to have loads of stuff about behavior and ecology of cassowaries. And there's like two pages on cassowaries in there because most of it is about how difficult it is to set up a research base in New Guinea. And he got embroiled in the politics and everything and basically setting up a conservation project and training native Papuans to, you know, be interested in conservation and everything. He had to sort all that out first before he could start to do the fieldwork in cassowaries. So he did some stuff. He talks about, you know, which fruit the cassowaries are eating and everything. But in terms of case function and behavior, we're still in you know, infancy of our knowledge. So we evaluate the hypotheses that have been proposed. 
I'm not going to start talking about that because I'll, I'll, oh yeah, two minute rule. Yeah. Stop there. <laughs> and then finally, we come up with some, a poss- we, we come up with a phylogeny, a DNA based phylogeny, which is kind of weird. Um, because there's the annoying thing is right. There's like three or four extant cassowary species, and one of them, and annoyingly, it's the one that's the sister taxon to the others. The one that's the sister taxon to the others, Casuarius casuarius, the so-called um, single water cassowary, or common cassowary, or southern cassowary. This one is the only one that occurs on Australia and New Guinea, which is in keeping with the idea that it's the oldest one. Mm-hmm. But then the other ones, the more anatomically modified ones, and which seem to be the younger ones based on the genetic, uh, the, the tree, the shape of the tree, they are exclusive to New Guinea. And exactly how you can reconcile this with the timing of um, sea level change and what we think we understand about the movement to and from, you know, when animals are able to get to New Guinea from Australia, because obviously we're assuming that cassowaries started out in Australia and got to New Guinea some point later on oh, it's it's just it's a real head scramble leafing um yeah. so, head scramble <laughs> thing yeah yeah uh, so so uh, uh, there's another word for that but i best not use it um so yeah this is this is very much one of those papers that says duh can we explain this no can we explain <laughs> this no uh and yeah <laughs> more research <laughs> is needed it's basically more research is needed. Here are some questions. But um, I, I kind of think papers like this do have a function, uh, do have a value in that half an arse is better than no arse at all, right? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it might be half arsed and provisional, but it's like, for the love of baby Jesus, why is there nothing else out there that covers this stuff? So, and we also put in loads of stuff about sexual selection, mutual sexual selection. Mm-hmm. Few nods to our good friends Padian and Horny, you know that kind of stuff. So, because um, living animals—that's where it's at. Not those stupid old fossil ones. Yeah. <laughs> stupid old fossil ones. <laughs> Take that, fossil animals. There are fossil categories, um, and they don't help us at all. They're completely useless. Uh-huh. So thanks a lot, fossil categories, because they good seem to be outside for nothing. The, uh, yeah, they're outside the clade that includes the extant ones. So, um, yep. So, who cares about them? Not me, so that's, that's for sure. Wow. <laughs> and they're also crappy as well. They're fragmentary. <laughs> they're like they're like a bit of a a bit of a limb bone and a partial pelvis. But oh, they're just the worst. Guess what? <laughs> what? Everything I've just said is forget about the rest of the world. We're only interested in northeastern Australia and New Guinea. Okay. That's the cassowary world. Forget about the rest of the world. But guess what? Some paleontologists went and found one in South America. <laughs> so, great. Thanks a lot, Herculean Alvarenga. Thanks yeah. a lot. So, <laughs> hasn't been published yet, and it's only a limb bone. So, I'm holding out so, hope that it's not a, it's not not a cassowary. Not only useless, but annoying. <laughs> but annoying and inconvenient. The yeah. kind of data that has to be ignored or expunged from the record. So, <laughs> Okay, great. <laughs> Glad we got that settled. <laughs> so, what's new? What? Uh, uh, sorry, carry on. I was just trying to think, what are those cases where people... There are cases in history... Oh, I'm talking... Uh, I wonder if I'm thinking of radical um, um, Muslims, people who, like, destroy evidence so that it doesn't affect the world view that they have. Well, but, of course, Stalin was famous for that, airbrushing people out of... um. 
photos because really? they were no longer in favour. I didn't know that. Yes, there's hilarious photos where they start with like six people in the background and by the end there's only Stalin because he's killed them all <laughs> and airbrushed them out of the photos. I'm not sure they're hilarious is the word I would use. Well, but, um, well yeah, yeah, they are kind of funny though. And often the people he killed, they weren't very nice people. Right, whereas he was. Yeah. No, yeah. he was not a nice person either. But um, yes, Stalin, okay. not a nice person. Yeah. But yes. Um, and in, in 1984 which incidentally is a work of fiction, there's, there's the whole thing about how they keep on rewriting history, don't they, according to the current version of uh, groupthink or whatever it is that it's called. Um, yes, absolutely. I think that still goes on. Um, and it certainly went on in totalitarian, goes on in totalitarian regimes. That's where he got the idea, of course, in 1984. That's because that's course. what um, the, the Stalinist Soviets were doing. Hmm. Um, and sense. also, the Nazis gave it a bit of a shot, but they weren't ever on the same page. Um, so much as much as I would like to continue, I sense we're drifting off. Ah, not a off. tangent, not on Ted Zoo. <laughs> okay, heavens so, to Betsy. So, no. what, so what's new at Ted Zoo? Oh, what's new at Tetsu? Uh, let's just have a quick look um, right now, because because I'm going away for a couple of weeks. Um, so, uh, which my friends will already know for various reasons. Um, uh, I'm is going this a on a secret. Uh, yeah, you should say. Well, I might as well say I'm yeah. going myself and my lovely wife Tony. We're going on a, a, a cruise on a big boat, <laughs> a ship to the Canary Islands. And this isn't because we've suddenly just become rich. It's because some months ago I was contacted by a company to um, ask if I'd be interested in lecturing on a cruise ship. And I was like, "What's the catch? How much do I have to pay?" And they said, "No, no, no." Seriously, it's actually free. We pay for everything apart from drinks at the bar. And um, I was like, I don't believe you. Prove it. And they said, well, here's a list of like 600 other people that have also been on the cruises, you know, and one of whom I know quite well. I wouldn't say who he is. But so I went and asked him and he said, oh, yes, it's all for real. Yeah, it's kosher. Um, and um, yeah, so we're going on. A, so basically it's a free holiday. And uh, but, but I have to lecture. So I'm lecturing on pterosaurs and uh, Theropods and sauropod dinosaurs. So, yeah, it's great. Um, looking forward to that. Nice, good. Yep. Maybe it's the first of a regular thing. So, me going away means that I've, when I've had, in quotes, spare time over previous weeks, I have deliberately stockpiled Tetsu articles. So, I've written a bunch of stuff and, um, um, yeah, it's, it's, there will, stuff will appear in my absence. Including articles on deer. So right now on Tezu, there's this thing on South American deer, which I can't remember why I chose to write that. But um, was it because of anything newsworthy? I don't think so. Like rodents as well. There's, there's a thing there on African pouch rats and their relatives. There's something else coming on obscure African rodents, which you should check out. I finally published my review of Chet Van Duzer's excellent Sea Monsters on Medieval and Renaissance Maps, which was mentioned here on the podcast, probably episode two or three or four or five or one of those numbers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's an amazing book. I showed you. You've seen the book, haven't you? It's yeah, the one yeah. with the sea yeah, chicken in it and stuff. Yeah. It's great. Sea chicken. Oh, <laughs> so good. Yeah. Then going back a couple of weeks to November the 12th, we have the article on Carterinkus, the short-snouted suction-feeding proto-ichthyosaur, and articles also on phytosaurs, a group of crocodile-like triassic archosauriforms. Uh, that's been covered on Tessie. But So the stuff that's coming next, is, there's some a really, I think, a really exciting thing on deer, which, okay, this is a special 
Tetsu podcast sneak peek for Tetsu. <laughs> There's the article was about bipedal behaviour in deer, which I've mentioned on and off, but I've never elaborated, never written about length, and also about confrontational behaviour in moose, which is that if you make a moose really angry, um, it won't run away. It'll turn and face you and go, "Come on then, come on then." <laughs> <clears throat> And I won't say the rest because it will spoil what's in the article. But okay. there's, um, and some of you might know that there's a really cool, cool is possibly the wrong word to use, but there is a recent, there's a video which did the rounds recently, which is entirely relevant to this subject. So, all right, right, um, Tetsu Wiki. Um, yeah, yeah. So what's what's new about the Tetsu Wiki? <laughs> so um for those who don't know i have to keep muting the microphone while I deal with sneezing and coughing and stuff oh god um tezu wiki is a tezu wiki project which again we spoke about last time it's coming along in leaps and bounds and um it's 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 really filling up with content it's looking great um he says well it in front of him Main page, yeah. So, I was, yeah, I'm not going to repeat everything I said last time, but it's, it's just—it's really—it's filling up nicely. It's also get, it's developing a kind of like you know homogenized look to the pages. And um, citizens of the Tetsu Empire is looking more and more extensive over time. We now have court jesters, royal spam catchers, <laughs> baronets, Tianzis, dancing bears, emissaries to Alaska. <laughs> Did you see him? <laughs> so, so there's this table, citizens of the Tetsu Empire. So position, I'm emperor, yeah. your grand vizier, for some reason. <laughs> agnostic name. Why agnostic name? Agno- well, whatever, that's the name, the human name of the person. And Oh, I've just noticed that <laughs> Matt Waddell and Mike Taylor, who are the archbishops, of course, yeah. <laughs> saw high priests and all-around neck guys. <laughs> You're down there as co-host of podcasts and co-author of Critical Logicon and all yesterdays. I would have written something far funnier than that, but that's pretty good. Mike Keezy, but my favourite word is for Mike Keezy. <laughs> so under like description, it just says Mike Keezy is taking that. <laughs> Take that, Take Keezy. That, Mike Keezy. <laughs> his uh, his title is um, Phyla Code Guy, so that's yeah. So so that, that's cool. Yeah, that's funny. Um, okay. Um, so that's news from the world of Darren and John. I should move on to news from the world of news. Briefly. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah, more? I'm putting that down on the drinking list. <laughs> mm-hmm. Briefly, very briefly, just want to, okay, three papers I want to talk about, aside from ones I've been involved in. First of all, um, a paper published in Proceedings of the Royal Society B by Mardik Leopold and a team of colleagues all based in the Netherlands, um, <clears throat> exposing the grey seal as a major predator of harbour porpoises. This is pretty incredible. Have you heard anything about this? I have, yes. But oh, okay. Well, for the benefit of those who haven't... Yeah, you're not actually just doing this podcast to me. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, yeah, but if you've heard about it, doesn't that mean everyone would have heard about it? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> um, so... Um, over recent years, well, since about 2003, a substantial number of um, 
substantial number, as in I think like, I think it's over a thousand of dead harbour porpoises have been discovered on the coasts of the Netherlands with unusual bite marks. And some of these bite marks are pretty horrible. Some of them are just like, um, well, some of them are just sort of raking wounds on the tailstock or whatever. Others are basically like all the flesh on the, around the neck and the side of the head has been ripped away and everything. And um, it was discovered a couple of years ago that, that porpoises, so th- this is Ficina Ficina, which is not a very big cetacean. It's like about, you know, 1.5 metres long or something. Blunt-headed um, odontocy. A number of them are like being battered, battered and washing up on the coast of the UK, I think particularly around Scotland, uh, like 15 years ago. And it turned out they were being killed by bottlenose dolphins that for an unknown reason were smashing the hell out of them. Um, and then some others have been found with, with, the, yeah, with, these, with, these other, with these other injuries. And it turns out, cut a long story short, you know, it's sort of a mystery. What's, what's causing these injuries? Turns out due to salivary DNA and data from the, the exact kinds of bite marks, grey seals, grey seals are now a major predator in the North Sea around the coasts of around the Dutch coast, the Netherlands, the coast of the Netherlands. Grey seals are now a major predator of harbour porpoises. Now, a grey seal is, well, I suppose two metres longish. So pretty similar in size to the harbour porpoise. Um, And yeah, just these horrible injuries. And they seem to be doing it regularly. So is this, this is one of those questions where, one of those issues where we have to ask, is this a new thing that's only just developed? Is it like a culture that's developed and has quickly spread through, I don't know, a small number of seals, a large number of seals? Have they learned it off each other? Have they always been doing it and we've just not noticed it before? Because it does genuinely seem to be a new thing based on the fact that this, the porpoises with these injuries have only been turning up since 2003-ish. Um, and if it is a new behaviour, then why is it only developed now? Um, some people have suggested in recent years that other seals, like common seals, people think that they are eating more seabirds than they ever did historically, and they reckon that's because there aren't as many fish to catch, and they're switching from predating on the fish they used to rely on, like cod and so on, and instead eating more birds. And so could be a similar thing here. Could it be that, you know, that they are having to move elsewhere in, in the food chain, exploiting a, a novel food source. And one of those things where we might not think, you know, ordinarily seals, a seal two metres long, ordinarily is expected to be predating on fish, say 60 centimetres long or less, but a seal two metres long can kill a cetacean of one and a half, two metres long. And once they learn they can do that, and, you know, they're pretty smart animals, they learn how to do complicated things. Once they do it, you know, that's it. They're doing it forever. Which also ties in with what we said, again, this is going back several episodes, we were talking about the fact that pinnipeds in general are regarded as cuddly, cute little sort of, you know, fairy things, but in actual fact could easily bite your face off. And um, and the very last paragraph in this paper by Leopold et al. is, finally, many of the mutilated porpoises were found on Dutch shores used frequently by human bathers and surfers, and there would appear to be no a priori <laughs> reason why humans may not be at risk from grey seal attacks. <laughs> so, um... <laughs> so, it's true. Also, it'd be interesting to see whether it leads to. Right, we won't. We'll never know this, but this is sort of the could be the incipient beginning of evolution. They could evolve to be bigger, stronger, better, and pick on bigger and bigger um, 
cetaceans. Yeah. Wow, It'd yeah. be quite interesting to see if you get some sort of mega predatory seal, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Don't tell that to the speculative zoologists among us. Ah, oh, too late. Too late. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. yeah Was that you sending me that Skype message? No. No, it uh, was probably oh. a spam message. No, it wasn't. It's okay. Someone else. Sorry. Um, so, uh, second paper briefly. Okay, I like as darker pterosaurs. You do as well. New paper on there's a there's a Moroccan as darkid published uh, a couple of years ago. Can't remember when. It's called Alanqua Saharica. Again, one of these Saharan fossils found in Morocco. That. Hey, I'm not trying to steal credit or anything here, but I was actually there when it was found. <laughs> um, and um, new paper by Dave Martil, my good friend and former PhD supervisor, and Niza Ibrahim. I, I also regard as a good friend and, uh, you know, famous, obviously, for the, the recent Spinosaurus paper, which we won't say a thing about today. No. Okay. Oh, too late. <laughs> um, so their new paper is in Cretaceous Research. It's called, it's titled An Unusual Modification of the Jaws in CF Alanqua. So they're basically saying they've got specimens that are probably Alanqua, but they can't be absolutely sure they are. But, you know, they're from that kind of Asdarkid, a mid Cretaceous Asdarkid pterosaur from the Kemke beds of Morocco. And in the, the, uh, the lower jaw and probably the upper jaw as well of Alanqua, about halfway along, there are weird kind of like bony stops kind of like um, sort of V-shaped. If you imagine you're looking down at the animal with the anterior in front of you, this V-shaped um, kind of thing in the lower jaw, which opposes a similar inverted V-shaped stop in the upper jaw. I think that's the, the basics of it. And um, so they're proposing that there's some kind of like, this sort of like... I can't think of an analogue. There must be like a mechanical device. I'm thinking of nutcrackers and stuff, but that's not doesn't really do it. But um, basically, there's two sort of opposing, like, convex nubbins halfway along these otherwise elongate stalk-like jaws. So I can't remember exactly what they say as regards function, but it seems there's some sort of, like, you know, uh, special ridge-like thing going along midway, which you'd, you'd infer, you'd guess, is something to do with that's where they actually, I don't know, smash open, break open, whatever it is they're eating, crustaceans or fruit or bones or whatever, because we, we don't really know what as dark as they're eating. We think they're eating a little bit of everything. Small um, sauropods mainly, I believe. Baby <laughs> <laughs> sauropods. Well, of course, a lanqua is not a particularly big as darkhead. I think the jaw length is something like, I don't know, something like 70 centimetres. And they've got a series of cartoons in the paper which show a hypothetical lanqua, um, like cracking things open and uh, but they also suggest that these these protuberances might have anchored soft tissue structures so they've also got some reconstructions where it's got like a big dangly wattle thing over the side of its face and another one where it's got like a big cheek big f- as in a flap yeah. of skin um I'll send you the paper because you'll get you'll get a laugh out of that um so yeah I mean I thought that was cool and they also say that Basically, what they infer that it was maybe using these stru- structures for crushing prey. They say that it. They say it could be consistent with the terrestrial stalking thing that Mark Witten and I have um, published on. So, um, yeah, I, I quite like that paper. Um, Where is it? What what venue? Cretaceous remember? Research, okay. which is 
owned by Elsevier and universally regarded as evil. Mm. No open access then. No open access, but I'm sure it'll be, you know, again, it's just knowing where to ask and where to go online to get, well, to, to those, to listeners out there who aren't involved in, you know, academic communities who aren't on ResearchGate or, or aren't in, you know, um, you know, academic communities on Facebook or whatever, there's all kinds of ways of getting papers for free. If you ever hear about a technical paper, how do you say this to people? Because it's like, hey, there's all kinds of people you can ask. The best thing is to ask the author of the paper because most of us that publish technical research actually want people to read it and um, we'll put it, we'll make it available. Some people are stupid and don't care. Yeah, I guess the thing is that what, the, what the lack of open access does is it makes if you're just sort of casually interested in reading it, which I think my, a lot of listeners probably are. You know, I might be casually interested in reading a paper on, I don't know, some sort of fossil mammal. I might not actually be, you know, interested enough to email someone about it or or go find a secret stash somewhere. But I might, I would very well might be interested enough to click on a link and read it on Plus One or whatever. You know, I, I think that's the that's the main sort of. I agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I personally do not publish in Cretaceous Research anymore because I'm not happy with Elsevier at all. But um, and I, I used to work for them, so I know what I'm talking about. But that's a whole other story. We're not going to go there. Now. Yeah, well, okay, okay, okay. okay. Um, finally, finally, yeah. briefly, 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 and I only want to mention this because it ties to again something that comes from a previous episode of the podcast where we were talking about these Chinese nothosaur foraging trackways. Do you remember this? These yeah, foraging yeah. trackways in the sediment, right, showed that these animals were punting along on the seafloor. And I said that one of the surprising things about these nothosaur trackways was that the animals that were making them weren't like two meters long or a meter long. They were gigantic, with the distance between their forelimbs being like a meter, indicating total lengths of seven or eight, eight meters, which was a surprise to me because I thought the Chinese nothosaurs were dinky, which is the technical term for small. Mm. Well, there's a new paper today in Nature Communications, I think. Nature Scientific Reports? I'm actually not entirely sure. Um, it's published by Jan Louis, which I've just pronounced incorrectly. So drink, drink, drink. I see you're drinking. Good work. And a team of colleagues, including Olivia Repel. Olivia Repel, just kidding. Don't know who's pronounced his name like that. Mike Benton, my good buddy. Neil Kelly, he's one of my homies. And a bunch of other people. The paper is titled A Gigantic Nothosaur from the Middle Triassic of Southwest China and its Implications for the Triassic Biotic Recovery. And all I want to say is this new species of Nothosaurus from China, which they call Nothosaurus Zhangai, is huge. It's a monster. Yeah. Now, they don't have a complete skeleton. It's bits and pieces. But it's definitely indicative of total length um, of five to uh, seven or eight meters. What do they say? Because it's buried somewhere in the paper. Five to... I can't find it and I'm not going to have time to find it. But it's somewhere between five and eight meters. And even if it's five meters, that is huge for one of these things. If it's seven or eight meters, that's double huge. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what we scientists call it. Or max, maxi huge, as we like to say. But, um, if yeah, they get cool. bigger and, than that, then you have to start going a double maxi and <laughs> yeah. ultimaxi. And, yeah. And in their phylogeny... Um, now, implications for their phylogeny as, as regards the differentiation between Nothosaurus and Lariosaurus, which those of you who know marine reptiles will care about this, no one else will, but they don't find Nothosaurus zhangi 
to group with the giant nothosaurs from Europe, like Nothosaurus giganteus. And in fact, they find Nothosaurus zhangyi to be one of the earliest diverging members of the Nothosaurus clade, in which case giant size has evolved independently in this lineage. Um, so gigantic size in Nothosaurus evolved more than once, and animals in Europe as well as in China were humongatastic. <laughs> Um, huge mungatastic huge so that is all I have to say about that okay good um, right so well, let's, let's, go, let's do our C for Q's and be, before we do our C for Q's I have to make a terrible confession and an apology yep. to David David note David Hewitt of what the hell is going on over there fame from a couple of episodes <clears throat> back, sent in the big cash for question. He sent it in, unusually, as an actual letter, which, of course, I then immediately lost, along with the envelope. Um, and I had to reconstruct his name by guessing who he was. And I didn't do a very good job of that, and so it's David Hewitt, not Daniel Hewitt. Ah, well, apologies to him. Yes, sorry, David, but there you go. Um, well, worst things have happened. Yeah, yes. And as people might have noticed, uh, <laughs> not the most organised person in the entire world. Um, <laughs> right, so let's do some cash for questions then. Let's start with Rebecca Groom's question. Yeah. Friend of the show, Rebecca Groom. Of Paleo Plushies. Paleo Plushies. Uh, where got, can you... Yeah. Go I've and got, buy her paleo plushies. Yeah, just enter paleo plushies into Google. I'm sure you'll find her Etsy shop. I've got one here. See that, Darren? Hey. I've got <coughs> a very nice ramp for rinkers. Look, I've got one here. Oh, so you've got you've got a um you've got an ichthyosaur, is it? Yeah, yep. it's an ichthyosaur. It's uh Temnodontosaurus, I believe. And I've got a ramp for rinkers. And they're really good. Yeah. They're posable paleo plushies, you should check them out. And those of you who are paying attention when we had TetsuCon will know that Rebecca brought along a whole stall of them. And I was like, I'm going to get me either a Microraptor or an Asdarkid. And then when I went along to buy one, there was not one left. They'd all been purchased by other people. So, yep. Not so surprising, most really. But yeah. There you go. Okay, so Rebecca asks... Actually, her question is very long, and I'm not going to read it out because it contains some of the answer. So I'm just <laughs> going to read out the very first bit of the question, which is, why do herring gulls stare at their feet, Darren? Why do herring gulls yeah. do this? Yeah, so, so, so Rebecca does kind of part... She provides um, several uh, answers, which, which kind of... So this is one of those things where we don't know. There's several possible suggestions. Why do herring gulls stare at their feet? Well, all of the so-called white-headed gulls stare at their feet for several reasons. One of them is that... Now, Rebecca doesn't really touch on this, but I've got to mention this anyway. One of them is because they're indulging in worm baiting, which is where they're not staring at their feet and keeping their feet still, but they're standing in a grassy, normally a grassy area, like a park or a garden or something, and they pump their feet up and down, and they're watching their feet all the time, and often they're doing it really quickly. Did we talk about this last time? Or I think we talked about it with... Uh were the herring gulls or a different yeah. sort of gull? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. So, so ten, you know, we could say that they are staring at their feet when they're doing that. And obviously they're doing that because they're pumping their feet to, like, they're trying to create seismic vibrations 
through the earth and cause worms to come to the surface. But Rebecca, of course, is talking about when they just <laughs> stood there staring at their feet. What the hell am I doing? Okay, so among the suggestions, one is that they're very bored and they've got nothing to do, <laughs> nothing to think about. No, one of them is that it's a form of, um, um, uh, I want to say dispeasement, but that's the wrong word. Uh, displacement, displacement activity. Displacement activity is like, for example, that is displacement activity. Or this is. Displacement activities, I was, for those who can't see me, I am pointlessly rotating a ring that I wear on one of my fingers. Uh, it's the sort of things that we do just to give ourselves something to do when we haven't got anything to do. But some of, part of the reason that we do these pointless things is because we are avoiding confrontation, possibly hostile or aggressive confrontation with other individuals. So, for example, imagine that you're standing at a bus stop and there's one person a metre away from you, rather than staring the person in the face because they're close to you. You might look at your phone, as everybody does these days, you stupid sheep. Or they Darren might... just says this because he doesn't have a smartphone. <laughs> My phone has just died. My Nokia Blackberry thing. Oh, stupid. Um... Or you might look at, you know, in olden times, people might look at their watch or fiddle with pennies in their pocket or look at their feet. They might look at their shoes or something. Um, I think that these uh, displacement activities are often done to basically, it's basically a body language way of saying, I'm sorry for the fact that I'm here. I can't do anything about that, but mind your own business because I'm minding my own business. And if you think of animals like, you know, birds, I was going to say birds in particular, but birds and many other animals, an over gaze in the direction of another member of your species is often a signal, often an aggressive, you know, it's got, it's a content filled message. So imagine a bunch of girls in a colony and one of them staring at his feet. That might be because it's just, hey, don't mind me other girls. I don't want to peck your face out or mate with you. I'm just here. I'm sorry about that. I'm nothing going to do about it. So that's one possible reason that it's a displacement thing. Another one that was favoured by animal behaviourist Nico Timbergen is that it was a... Um, uh, no, I've forgotten it. Okay, so I'll go on to the, the, the third or fourth <laughs> C, the other explanation, which is that, and, and, and again, Rebecca mentioned this, <laughs> I think, the idea that they're actually studying their feet in order to make sure that everything is okay down there. Because um, if you're a bird that relies on your feet for standing, <laughs> then you need to make sure that they're, they're not like covered in parasites or, you know, gummed up with tar or, you know, pebbles stuck in them or anything. So it has been proposed that every now and again, in the same way that birds have to check their plumage, make sure the feathers are in working order best as possible. They're actually looking at their feet, making sure that they're okay. And if, oh, they're not okay, I've got like a, I don't know, an echinoderm spine sticking through my bit of webbing there, then, well, this is something they've got to do every now and again. Um, and I think maybe this is part of the answer. They actually are actually looking at their feet because they need to do that every now and again. But it doesn't explain why they might stand there for five minutes just looking at them. Mm. So... Uh, I can't remember the other explanation, but which means let me because yeah. So Rebecca does mention that uh, Rebecca's pet hypothesis is to do with shedding salty water from their salt glands. On some occasions, when I notice them looking down, drips of water gather around the end of their beak, and they subsequently shook their head to remove it. Well, 
they do that anyway, don't they? Because their superorbital salt glands mean that they're, you know, shedding unwanted saline solution, which is dripping off the, out of the nostrils and off the tip of the bill. But they don't need to be looking down to do that because it happens anyway. And in fact, birds, seabirds that do excrete unwanted saline solution, they can, they can have their head in any position apart from looking up at the sky. But they can, if they head, have their head in neutral horizontal position, they're shedding the saline solution. So I don't think they'd need to be looking down um, for that to apply. And does Rebecca mention um, the other thing that I haven't... I'm going to have to go and find this book to, okay. uh, to get that. But don't worry, it's within reach. So I can, I can even carry on talking while I get it. It's on, okay. it's on one of the bookshelves over here. Uh, I have a lot of books. Uh, it's in one of Nico Tim Bergen's books. Uh, Nico Tim Bergen came up with a lot of like um, sign, what what are called sign stimulus hypotheses. The idea that animals see a signal and they can't help but but respond in a predictable mechanical fashion, and um, and the sort of basic ethos to a lot of his views on um, animal behavior were, were kind of based around this sort of simple automaton-like you know, mechanical function in animals. And it kind of became, it was sort of really popular thing in like middle 20th century, but then sort of basically began to, began to be undone in part because now Tim Bergen and a couple of other um, uh, European animal behaviorists they had sympathies that weren't really regarded as totally cool with the the other people, and uh, and it was like mm, you. There's a, there's a whole like interesting human story there, but also obviously just it was discovered that things were just a lot more complicated, and animals weren't necessarily so mechanistic as they had always thought, and a lot of the things they thought were simple signals weren't functioning in that fashion. Anyway, the 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 other it was I've got to say it was a pretty dumb idea. I mean, it's just dumb. Anyone that's ever had a pet, pet knows that this is a dumb theory. I'm sorry, it just is. It's it flies in the face of uh, because we know what our behaviours are like and what goes on inside us. To just say, okay, that same behaviour in that animal, then that's just autonomous, autonomous, <laughs> automaton stuff. It's just stupid. It's a dumb theory, uh, and I'm amazed it got such traction. But I think it's because of the long history we have of trying to separate ourselves from the animals it's it's motivated reasoning uh yeah um i would partly agree i wouldn't i wouldn't agree entirely because i would say that as with all these things it's like you know we i think we've spoken about this before the fact that scientists try and find simple you know you want to find one tidy answer that can explain as much as possible so the problem is someone observes they observe a thing that happens on three occasions in three species so they then say they then you know generalize it and say it goes for everything and i would say that there there surely are cases where organisms including us do respond in a certain predictable fashion to certain signals and after all you know we know that you know that people can be manipulated in certain ways by you know subconscious cues things that we just can't help rely on mm, but no, we can't no help respond yeah. to no I, but to say that it explains everything is going too far. Yeah, yeah but, so it's a but of... even given that, that we know that the mechanisms through which they travel are complicated. Yeah. Right? So, yes, of course, humans can react in predictable ways to certain things, but 
we know that it's, that goes through a whole bunch of complicated stuff and might yeah, be tripped yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah, is what, and, and the idea that that was something completely different was going on in animals is silly. Well, I don't know if he was saying it was something different from what goes... I don't think he was saying that humans were necessarily different. Mm. But the idea that it's... Yeah, it's got to be contingent on other things. So, for example, okay, if we see food that we want to eat, we'll salivate. That's a sign-stimulus response. And, and therefore, you could say, well, there you go. We have this simple robot-like mechanistic thing. But are you going to tell me that that happens every single time, every time you see any sort of food that's edible? No, because you know there are all sorts of other things. There's like the physical condition you're in, the condition of the state of mind you're in, what your interests are at the time, where the sort of food you want to eat, blah, 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 blah. There's like a, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. I think it's part of the story. But yes, this was an oversimplification. And in fact, what you've just described was demonstrated by... Desmond Morris and Aubrey Manning, two famous biologists who, funnily enough, coincidentally, of both of them, gone on to have like big careers in, uh, you know, the Desmond Morris Naked Ape and stuff, yeah, and, yeah. and Aubrey Manning's done loads of stuff on uh, geological time and evolution. But people that have basically been on TV a lot, biologists that have not just <laughs> not just not just done the nerdy like techie work, but yeah. have actually spread the word. They can they devised there's this famous thing from, I think, the 60s, where they invented a machine which they said was meant to function in the way that Tim Bergen and others imagined animals to work. And basically, sign stimulus. So this thing happens, which leads to this like enzyme cascade, which leads to this physiological response, which leads to this behavioural um, you know, what do you call the, the visible thing? You know, this, this visible, you know, physiological response and um they invented this stupid machine where you know thing happens and <laughs> and did a little trickle 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 and then like a giant bucket of water gets thrown over the audience and then <laughs> i forget i'll have to go and read up about the experiment again but their point was does this really happen in animals <coughs> no <Yeah. laughs> so anyway 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 getting back on track yeah the other hypothesis about foot staring is that it is um in keeping with what i said about it being some behaviors nearby. Tim Bergen implies that it may be um, frozen anger. <laughs> so I'm just so angry. I'm just going to stand here with my bill pointed down towards the ground. I'm not really looking at my feet, but that's just the way my head goes. So, yeah. Super and, uh, and, angry. <laughs> super angry. Frozen anger. So and if you just got, poke them, they'd just explode. Yeah, and he's got a little cartoon of if a human is in the frozen anger position, it's like this. <laughs> yeah. Like that. But the girl, yeah. look, that's a little. Look. See the little drawings? So. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there you go. So the real answer is nobody knows. See, I think the anger answer is actually very similar to the um, avoiding. Uh, gaze you know, avoidment gaze, gaze avoidance you know it's a, i am so angry now right now but i don't want to act on this so i'm just going to avoid any stimulus um which is why p humans do it um so i could believe that animals sometimes do that sure yeah but why do any of these explain why herring gulls in particular seem to do this and other birds don't i i reckon that this is like a gull wide thing yeah. And obviously, Rebecca's talking about seeing it in herring gulls because that's the kind of girl that she has observed the most. Correct me yeah. if I'm wrong, Rebecca. But um, 
and I would say the same, obviously, Herring Girls is the species of girl I watch the most. Mm. But, um, yeah, uh, I, actually, I don't know how widespread it is in birds. I mean, I don't see pigeons or blackbirds or sparrows doing it because they're always moving around so much. Or pigeons aren't. Pigeons sit there for a long time. But they don't really look at their feet. But then maybe that's why, maybe that's why pigeons have got such bad luck with their feet because they're not looking after them. Yeah. You know, you know I wrote a while ago. It's disastrous, yeah. Well, yeah, you, this article about pigeons like lacking their toes and stuff. Yeah. Maybe gulls, uh, I don't know, maybe this is a, a marine thing, a seabird thing. Maybe they do have to pay better attention to their toes. But that's stupid because you think that birds that have got a perch all the time would, would be under pressure to look after their feet as well, wouldn't you? Um, yeah. Well... It'd be interesting. I mean, I I think I'll start watching our geese and swans more when they're standing around on the bank, where they <laughs> stare at their feet. I, I I don't think I've ever seen it. No, I don't think I have. Uh, hmm. Yeah. So there you go, further, Rebecca. We don't know. Yeah. You know, Other work is needed. Much as much as Darren, more than me. That's good. And we should also say that Re- Rebecca did actually specifically check Nico Timbergen's book, The Herring Girl's World. So she's probably done more, done more research on this than we have. So, so there you go. Here's your money's st- worth, Rebecca. Yeah, we still appreciate your question, Rebecca. Thank you very much. It's an interesting Thanks. question, isn't it? It's just so many of these things that just don't really have good answers. There's loads of stuff like that. And even, even really familiar animals like... Uh, I remember a list well, of questions. Gulls. Yeah. Gulls. Yeah, but like, you know, dogs and cats and hamsters and things. There's I remember a list of questions that um the late great Clinton Keeling posed. He was a kind of famous slash notorious person in the, the zoo keeping world until uh, a decade ago. Um he um yeah, published this list of questions about um domestic dogs, things that we things that Domestic dogs do it, and nobody really knows the answer to. Mm. And one of them was puppies of some breeds. When they're drinking or eating, they put so much weight on their forelimbs that they end up handstanding. I know you're familiar with this. You had a dog that did this, didn't you? No, you're thinking someone else. Thinking of another John Conway. Um, and some dogs, quite a lot of dogs, domestic dogs, don't know about wild ones or feral ones, they don't walk. Um, they walk off square, which means that they walk in... Imagine they walk in a straight line. They walk at an yeah. angle because their hind feet, it's almost as if their hind feet are moving faster than the forefeet. So the, the back of their body is like coming round to the side all the time, which uh, doesn't seem to be a tremendously efficient gait. Is that because we've bred dogs with stupid proportions? Or, I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, like nervous problems and things in domestic animals due to... Yeah, but you tend to see that uh, I might be imagining this, but you tend to see that in sort of longer-legged dogs that are built for running, don't you? I, I've I've always thought that was because to separate because they do this in a sort of a fast trot, right? It's to so they don't get their legs tangled up. As in, when they're running really quickly, they tend to do the they bring the forelimbs really close together and spread the hind limbs. But if they're doing the fast trot, they do an asymmetrical thing that's what i've always thought but then i and now i think about it i don't know whether i've seen it in small short-legged dogs and that sort of stuff i can't really i'm not really sure well what you've just said makes sense but are you talking about the same thing are you talking about them walking at at an at an angle with the body yeah at an angle so Mm. their back legs are not in the same line as their front legs well i can say how far they go forward because they're not gonna 
No, I've seen it in terriers, so I thought it was a short, a small dog thing. Ah, oh, I'm thinking and more if, of seeing it in sheepdogs and things. Like I thought that. it was, I thought it was most pronounced in terriers, with they're sort of like walking along. Like <laughs> <laughs> well, you could be right. I don't know. I don't think any, either of my small dogs did that, but yeah, you could be right. I don't know. And and my dog, she is probably a Staffordshire Bull Terrier Jack Russell cross, and she's not. She's a mid-sized dog. Um, she does it, but not to a pronounced degree. Mm. So, uh, yeah. So, and and uh, right, We're, tangent, tangent. Right. Okay. So let's go. Let's do another cash for question. Uh-huh. Mm. Uh, so, Richard in Ottawa asks, "How do we know that fossils are representatives of a gen- of a general population? Maybe fossilizability is in some way unique. E.g." Maybe healthy Tenontosaurus had long arms and could juggle, but... What? <laughs> but a rare bone disease caused... <laughs> okay. Deformed arms that had a side effect of increasing fossilization through calcium buildup. Or something. Or something. Or something, yeah. I think yeah, we yeah. we're getting at. How do, you control for, how do you control for this? For that? This? Yes. Yeah. So, ten- juggling Tenontosaurus. How do we know? How do we know? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And uh, do you want to say anything particularly intelligent? Well, I have some thoughts, but I'll let you start first because well, it's your show. Well, yeah. Okay, well, I'll, is it? The, it's not the Darren show. <laughs> anyway, we are the Tetrapod Cats. Yeah. Um, or as someone tried telling me yesterday, oh, by the way, you've misspelled podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Well done. I hadn't thought of that. I'll oh, know all this time. All this time. <sighs> God, some of you know who I'm talking about. Um, anyway, um, well, I think that the basic answer to this question is, yeah, we just don't know. As in, like, if we, well, okay, if we have a singleton, a, f- a fossil taxon represented by a singleton, and it's really, really weird. Now, if that really, really weirdy thing about it is consistent anatomically with what we see in other related animals, for example, we find a new kind of tyrannosaur and it's got particularly short arms, then that's okay because that's what we expect for that group of animals. But if it's something that looks like an obvious teratology or malformation, like one arm is twice the length of the other one, then we'll say, well, based on what we understand about uh, deformity, malformation, teratology in living animals, then this probably is not a typical individual of its species, even if it is a one-off. I think we would say that. I'm not sure what else to say. What were you going to say? Um, I guess it just goes to bias in the fossil record, doesn't it? So we probably uh, we do know that there's probably biases in uh, fossilization. Obviously, you know, you get yeah. many more of one sort of animal than another, um, and it doesn't reflect the general populations. Um, but I guess I hadn't I hadn't really thought about the bias within populations based on things other than just size, right? So I, I can understand. It's been it's a fairly mm. normal idea that there's a fossilization bias based on size in different different localities. But I guess I hadn't thought about whether things with that are abnormal in some way have effects on fossilization. And I guess the only way we can get try and get at this, because we just don't know, I think is the answer, but I think the only way we can try and get at this is to think about what mechanisms would lead that fossilization to be biased in the first place. Um, so why would having 
an, an unusual, an abnormality of some sort lead you to being more likely to be fossilized. Mm. Um, I could think that there might, there's a couple of reasons. Maybe your mortality is higher, but um, it has yeah, to be, yeah, I just, I don't think that. The rarity of these things, yeah, as you the say, rarity. the rarity of them in the first place means that just the odds yeah. are down. Yeah, and your and mortality then, doesn't really matter given the rarity. Yeah. So. And also, uh, deformities, the deformities that we're going to recognize in fossils, and obviously we're only talking here about tetrapods, the deformities, obviously, we're talking about things that involve bone. If you think of any deformity that involves bone, um, apart from hyperossification, like the animal has grown a bunch of extra bone, often the deformities are detrimental to the anatomical well-being of the animal. Like, they're not able to, say, you know, m- metabolize as much. They're not able to store as much calcium in the bone, mm. or the bone is weaker, or it's got an extra... You know, like it's got, I don't know, things that things where like the bone is that instead of having the bone as one, the bone is formed as two parts. Basically, some of the problems would mean that the 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 bones of the animal would be less likely to be preserved and less likely to be preserved well um, than in a normal individual. So that would also count against, yeah. A lot of deformities, you know, are not going to show in the fossil record. I think for that reason, because they're not they're not going to be preservable, um, or they're you know fossils get distorted a lot. Anyway, you know, very many bones are sort of twisted and crushed, which means that often we're going to miss things that could be normal deformities, like you know, asymmetries, differences in <clears throat> yeah yeah asymmetries and, and, and bowing sort of, of limbs and this sort of yeah thing. yeah because yeah. if we see that sort of stuff, we often have to assume. You know, we often do assume that it's, um, yeah, just normal variation. Because there's loads of things. Uh, ichthyosaurs, which, you know, I think about a lot. A lot of ichthyosaur specimens, the left and the right paddles are different lengths. And is that uh, deformation that's happened, you know, when the bones have been in the rock? Or is it because they really have slightly differently length paddles? Because there are some animals that do have, I think, I forget what the number is for people, but... um there's some populations where it's pretty typical to have slight differences in limb length. Uh, not major visible differences, but, you know, it's there. So, uh, I don't know the rates of these sorts of things that you would be able to see in fossil, in fossil animals. I don't know the rate of deformity is in wild animals. Mm. Because I'm thinking about it now and thinking, actually, we do have a lot of fossils, right? Okay, not, not a lot of individual... Um, taxa but we do have a lot of fossils overall you would expect even if the rate is relatively low that you would get a whole heap of um <laughs> fossil animals with uh, deformations um uh, can you think of any off the top of your head two-headed things yeah. or yeah there was a recently stuff? there was a recently published Baby Caristodea, an aquatic reptile mm-hmm. from early yeah. Cretaceous China, is two-headed. I can't remember if it was an embryo or a. I'm pretty sure it was an embryo, a two-headed one. Which, and I can't remember if there's any other two-headed, um, yeah, fossil tetrapods. But based on what we know about, you know, snakes and turtles and whatever, then yeah, that's going to happen sometimes, isn't it? You're going to have 
conjoined twins that haven't well conjoined twins. So, but it's going to be rare. Yeah, and also I guess one thing is that a lot of these animals die young, right? Mm. Often very young. In which case, they're um, because they're not going to be fully ossified. A lot of them, I think, their fossilization, the, the fossil bias against would be against them. So you know, young animals. I think there is a, a fossil bias against young animals, isn't there? I don't know how we'd actually demonstrate that for sure, but against them or yes. it, it, it depend again it depends, it depends on what kind yeah. of animals you're looking at but um because some juveniles are overrepresented and others they're you know not represented at all so yeah um yeah but i would think that okay just going by sort of imagining the process of fossilization a smaller animal with much more cartilage is going to be torn apart more easily it's going to fall apart more easily it's going to bits of more bits of it are going to rot more quickly just mm. because it's smaller and because of its cartilage, cartilage bits. Yeah, it just gets swallowed by something bigger yeah, gets in the swallowed. first place. Yeah, so I would think that a lot of this, there'd be actually a bias against these animals rather than towards them. Mm. So to go back to Richard's question, how do we control for this? I kind of say that, I kind of think that we can't control for it and we often don't need to because we're often dealing with such small sample sizes and identifying these things is predominantly a matter of applying knowledge about the present to the record that we have for the past. Mm. Uh, we're just looking for um, the sorts of things that we recognise as malformations, teratologies, abnormalities or whatever in fossil ones. But th- there, might, there might be cases where we have, we have screwed up, but we can't be sure about that due to sample size. And there's probably some like, incredible cases of you know, fossil malformations that we've completely forgotten but and also i also am aware of cases where there are fossil animals that are preserved a funny way and people have assumed that the the peculiarity of the fossil is due to taphonomic distortion mm. for example there is a pliosaur north american polycotylid where the only known specimen the, um, the rostrum bends sharply to one side, I can't remember which side, and it's just assumed that that's what happened to it, you know, during, while it was in the rocks. This, this does happen a lot, but it's equally possible that was the case in life, and it was some freak side-swimming. <laughs> Either the whole species were like this, and they were sort of, you know, they did some specialised crazy thing. They, they all swam on the left-hand sides, and they all bent to one side, because, you know, that kind of thing is known in living animals, or that one individual was a was yeah. a an unfortunate one but, um well yeah yeah maybe it's, maybe it did we just, now but it did all right it's exactly yeah, yeah. We, and we just we just there isn't you know maybe with like increased ct scanning and that sort of thing now we can spot abnormalities and yeah. things more and more but given that we can't you know look at the genetics of fossil animals predominantly um it's hard to know what else to say. Yeah. Yeah. I guess asymmetry is one of the biggest clues towards it being um, being an abnormality. Um, so, but as you, as you say, it's difficult to look at asymmetry in the fossil record because things are distorted and very, very rarely symmetrical. However, a lot of... Um, a lot of abnormalities are quite asymmetrical. They're not a little bit. They're very asymmetrical. So, I don't know. You've got a leg growing out of one side and not the other. That sort of thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, another another example, um, sorry, of animals that have got a weird abnormality. And it's assumed... Uh, I don't know how to... 
sorry, a bit of brain dead. What's the right way to put it? <laughs> What's the right way around to say this? Okay, there's a, a dinosaur called Labradon ferox, known from a lower jaw, and the lower jaw has got this, like, it bends down towards the tip, mm. and there's what looks like a giant tooth socket, and it was assumed to be like a weird saber-toothed dinosaur. But then it turned out that it's just a uh, an Allosaurus with some horrible pathology deformity at the end part of its jaw. Presumably, the, the actual individual featured in one of those CG dinosaur TV series, Dinosaur Taser Attack or something, I don't know what it's called. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, it turned, yeah. Out, turned out to be a pathology. But you could only recognise that it was a pathology of an Allosaurus, Fragilis, when you have, you know, 20 or 50 or 100 Allosauruses to compare it with. And when you've only got one Labrosaurus and one Allosaurus or you know, similar small numbers, you can't, you can't say. But once people had a lot of them, they could show. Uh, Labrosaurus ferox is not a distinct taxon. After all, it's just a, yeah, a busted, malformed Allosaurus. So that's kind of another case study which backs up what we were saying, I hope. There are several papers on um, uh, pathologies in uh, dinosaurs and other fossil animals, of course. Mm. But I can't remember any of them off the top of my head. Oh, I can, but I don't want to talk about them right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I think that's slightly <laughs> different. That's not, not quite... That's, <clears throat> that's, that's not the question. So I, I think the answer is that we can't control for it. We don't really know what's going on. I sort of yeah. err towards the side of that there would be a bias against um, preserving unusual animals, but, uh, you know, who really knows, right? Yeah, I mean, I hope that's a bit messy as usual, but I think that's an adequate summary of where we're at or what we can say. So yeah, I hope, Richard, you're cool with that, and thanks for the question. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Richard. We do... Excuse me. <laughs> so professional. Yeah. We do have other. Uh, <laughs> we do have other cash for questions. Thank you to people who have sent them, but we're gonna save them for next time, I think, because uh, yeah, as usual, we've yeah, time is always against us. Yeah, um, uh, tangents, tangents. They don't help, but you know, it wouldn't be Ted Zoo without them. Okay, so, um, yeah, so yeah, thanks for our cash for questioners. We'll get to everyone else next episode, I think. So, popular tat, Baron. Popular, popular tat. tat. Yeah. So, so should we start with Jurassic World? Jurassic World. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> where, where should we start, and who wants to go first? Um, you go first. All right. Well, to, okay. So, to those who don't know, there's a film called Jurassic World, which comes out in June 2015. It's kind of a sequel to the Jurassic Park films, and the trailer went live as of I don't know two or three days ago, and the interwebs went nuts, and everyone's going, "Oh my god, you've got to see this trailer! It's like the best thing ever! It's just awesome! It's got dinosaurs and a man on a bike in it." And um, of course. People like me, and I don't know about John, but certainly me and Brian Sweetek uh, and a couple of other people, we sort of started, you know, sending a few tweets saying, yeah, good work, good work there. Glad you're up to date on the dinosaurs. And, yeah. yeah, well done, loving it. Uh, oh, great, yeah, the mosasaur. Yeah, it's really cool, yeah, 45-meter-long mosasaur without a forked tongue. Yeah, yeah, well done, great. You know, the, the, the tweets are like that. And then, of course, you've got all these... I don't. I haven't. I've been trying to think of like a, a generic term for those websites like Gizmodo and um, 
um, oh, geek, uh, geek. What's it called? Give me some of those things. What are they called? Uh, um, Gorka yeah. and um, io9 and these things that you know people look at them and think, oh, they're really cool. I'm, I'm like, I'm a cutting edge person because I'm looking at this cool stuff online. But they're actually, they are kind of masturbatory geek rants mostly to be, you know and uh and so, yeah we're really cool because we read gizmodo or gorka or whatever but look how stupid other people interested in the same stuff as us are so they're looking these websites that cover popular tat stuff that's happening in the world of tech and science movies they're looking for something. We've got to say something about Jurassic World. What are we going to say? I know. Let's see what 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 people said about it on Twitter. Oh, look, there's some tweets. So let's take some screen grabs of tweets, five screen grabs of tweets, and uh, write an article. Look at what the dino nerds are saying about Jurassic World. And, of course... Ha-ha, <laughs> stupid nerds. Stupid nerds. Gizmodo was the first to do this. Not a website that I check regularly, if at all. But well, Gizmodo tech focus than most of those yeah. okay so gizmodo what was what was the article called it was like dinosaur nerds in uproar at uh i'm gonna find i'm gonna find it jurassic park inaccuracies or something jurassic world dinosaur nerds are already already mad Ready within minutes of the of the trailer going online, dinosaur nerds are already mad. But Jurassic World says Gizmodo. The trailer for the new movie Jurassic World was released today. It looks fun, but some science-minded folks are already pouncing on the dino-filled movie for inaccuracies. Brian Sweetek, author of my of the book My Beloved Brontosaurus, writes that the film's fictional. Nerd. <laughs> Writes films, fictional, super intelligent, genetically modified dinosaurs shouldn't have thumbs. And then there's a screen grab of Brian's tweet. Morgan Jackson, a blogger and insect nerd from Canada, is upset about the film film showing a crane fly trapped in amber when it's supposed to be a mosquito. And they do the same thing. Screen grab of his tweet. Darren Nash, as all dishes. Oh, what a nerd. is most perturbed by the decision not to include feathered dinosaurs. And then, screen grab of my tweet. And Nash is also angry about, well, I don't know what exactly. I'm no dino scientist, but he is. So I trust he's angry for a good reason. Because Platinotan hypothesis pertaining to what I said in the tweet about the fact that the Mosasaur didn't have a forked tongue. Um... FFS indeed, because I finished the tweet with FFS. We, we feel your nerdly pain, even if we have no idea what you're talking about in this case. <laughs> yes. Okay. So the original. Um, what's this one on Gizmodo? <laughs> sorry, can I jump back in there? Because yeah, what sorry. I wanted to say was so, sorry to. Sorry, I have to keep on muting the microphone because of my <laughs> illness. Um, the. So basically, this Gizmodo article, now, that's lazy journalism. Screen grabs of tweets. That's a good <laughs> job. There's a lot of work involved there. But the, what makes it all the worse is, of course, because these are the first guys to do it, within, like, two hours, like, ten other sites have all done exactly the same thing. They've all gone, no, dinosaur nerds, angry, look at what they say. And all use the same tweets. So on that day... I was on, I don't have the list in front of me, but I was on like a thing called CBC, 
Um, I was in the Telegraph and the Independent newspaper. It was my tweets were read word for word on Radio One, which is like the one of the most listened to radio shows here in the UK, by some DJ kind of like. Uh, Sort of, uh, these DJs are all the same. Greg mm. Greg James is called. He, he's like a he's like a male version of what's her name? That one who's also like all the female DJ people. Uh, <laughs> Fern Fern Cotton. He's like the, he's like a male Fern Cotton, and they're all doing the same thing. They're all going, "Hey, look at these silly nerds!" Right? No, no, because they're using that voice. Yeah. He says, "Hello, I'm Darren. Uh, <laughs> screw you, science. We don't need your feathers." He did it in, in this kind of voice, and um, now so so. Yeah, so it, it it got huge, and I was interviewed for on Nat Geo covered it as well, uh, but they added a little bit more substance, of course, as you expect for Nat Geo. Now, if you've been quoted word for word with your Twitter handle on sites like Gizmodo, Gawker, and all that stuff, can you predict what happens on Twitter? What do you think happens on Twitter, John? It's quite variable. Nothing could happen, depending. Nothing or, could happen, or it could go crazy. Or it could go crazy, and you could, you could maybe have done this thing in order to make people pay attention to you, and you would get a huge swarm of new followers, mm. and maybe you could get hundreds of angry, embittered tweets along the lines of, God, you nuts, make me so angry, I'll pummel you into the earth, or stop thinking about dinosaurs and go and get laid, and... Angry, angry stuff, and, and that's basically what I got. Hundreds and hundreds of those things. Did so you? What sh- well, I didn't see that. So oh. what should you do? Should you ignore them, or should you reply to all of them? I think you should block them all. Oh, I replied to them all, because I thought it was really funny. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, is, there's so many. that Let me try and find some of the best ones. Oh, retweeting them is also quite good. Oh, I, ret- I retweet them, and... Um, Oh dear, let's go through the whole marmalade thing here. Paddington Bear and marmalade. Um, it, it was it was just nuts. Now, and I could actually invest. Don't get me wrong, I put hours and hours into this, but I could invest minutes into this because I've been ill. I've been literally sat in bed. Okay, I went I went to bed with my computer. Sounds odd, but um, um, yeah. So I was just you know monitoring the interwebs. Uh, all day and um, oh my god there's just I'm scrolling through these tweets and there are just hundreds of them it's taken ages uh, but there were some really funny ones oh I was on a thing called the Mary Sue which was exactly the same thing people mad at Jurassic World <laughs> uh. it's funny trying to get into the psychology of the people that are angry that people who know about dinosaurs have something to say about this right I just don't get what they're... They feel like it's ruining their fun or something, but it would only ruin their fun, presupposing that they also care a little bit about accuracy. Right? Because if they just don't care about accuracy, what do they care what we say? Yeah. It's... (laughs) Well, and a a lot of the people who respond negatively or aggressively to these kind of messages they say they say why they they often say why are you so angry or why are you so um you know uh, why are you so i forget there was one in particular saying why are you so manic about it or something and i'm like you know you don't want to make a big deal out of it but it's like 
I've, I invested a whole 20 seconds into typing a tweet. And I, okay, <laughs> I tweeted about the movie maybe four or five times, or maybe, maybe even 10 times. I mean, I'm not really... We're on Twitter, and I'm, you know, spouting my mouth off like everyone does on Twitter. It's like... And you're doing the same thing in responding, you know, in, in uh, talking about it. So It's, ever, it's and, everyone getting... Um, anger and angrier, confu- um, con- <laughs> con- <laughs> confu- what is, why is this word not coming out? More confused here? No, no, <laughs> no, it's not confusing. Accusing everyone else of being angry, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> why are you so angry at me being angry? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I but thought- dinosaur, sorry. No, go ahead. Well, dinosaur nerds are already mad at Jurassic World is a, is a little, headline that's designed that's you know specifically tailored to incite um people to you know visit and because yeah. we like getting angry at stupid people we yeah, like it's a little so, flame bait sort of it's title, exactly definitely yeah. um and it just shows that not only are the people that write these articles you know lacking in any insight themselves but also that they there's no originality there i mean you'd like i say the fact that like at least 10, maybe many more than that, articles and, um, you know, journalistic pieces and and radio pieces, people just rehashing the same tweets. It's like, is that, is is that? So my thinking is they need to say something about Jurassic World or that Jurassic World thing that's just come out. What have we got to say about it? We haven't got anything to say about the trailer other than, whoa, it's a trailer. It looks great. We love it. Can't wait for the movie. But they've got nothing more to say about that. So it's like, that's the only thing they can focus on. And that, I think, that's lame. That is just so lazy. It is very lame. But, the, of course, you realise that this happens with with just about everything. Uh, they they come up with an angle and they all copy each other. I mean, yeah. it's partly because they've got to write, I don't know, 15 articles a day or whatever. I don't know what their work pressure is like. But it's not leading to a very good place, is it? And it's also really weird to find this on nerd websites, right? Gizmodo and these sorts of places. Mm. So you're going to laugh at people who care about dinosaurs, but caring about some other crazy thing about like some sort of minutiae about superheroes. Well, that's, (coughs) that's absolutely acceptable. And that's serious stuff or something like this Or, or minutiae about technology. Um, and I think that that's uh, – it's just – it's a dumb story saying, ha-ha, look at these people who care about something. Mm. It's always a dumb story. And you do see it. I think um, I had a comment on uh, Facebook that, yeah, this is this is quite common. Uh, I think it's Kim Parker said that, you know, it's it's a common thing. That you laugh at – look at these people arguing about stuff we don't care about. What a bunch of idiots. I don't think that's ever, ever a good story, and I don't think you'd ever run with that. Yeah, and looking at the comments on Gizmodo now, there's there's a mixture of spite and a lot of people saying, "Oh, don't they know it's only a movie?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I've heard that one a lot, a lot of times. But there's there's also like a fair sprinkling of comments from people saying, you know, well, to be fair, I'm, I'm I agree with the experts if we regard myself and Brian as experts because. You know, this is meant to be like a science fiction thing, and isn't there like the, the the whole reason that it's a big deal is because the whole point of the Jurassic original Jurassic Park, the first film, is that they were trying to to like portray dinosaurs accurately. I mean, they failed, but they did their best. You know, they tried to make them accurate. Whereas now it's like we know that they could be accurate, but we're deliberately 
like two fingers up to that. So you do have people saying, you know, I agree with the scientists. Why, why can't we have feathers on them? And, you know, this is not just a fantasy movie. This is meant to be like science fiction. And, and I really liked, again, I'm going to pronounce his name incorrectly. Is it Simeon Koenig? Uh, that thing I read to you earlier. Let's see if I can find it again. <laughs> the thing where, so Simeon or Simon, oh, how are you supposed to say it? Oh God, I hate myself so much. Um, hey, guess what? I can't find the message. Oh, good. He was basically saying that um, the, the, the it's only a movie, it's only a movie, it's only a movie. We hear this all the bloody time <laughs> when we're talking about dinosaurs in films. So try this experiment. Okay, I'm now quoting Simeon directly. Try this experiment. Take the typical comment in response to dinosaur nerds and swap out science fiction with any genre except magical fantasy, and ask if it sounds too rational. So, for example, do we ever hear the following? It's military fiction, you nerd. It's not about real war, you idiot. It's crime fiction. They don't have to pay attention to how the legal system works, you jackass. It's a football movie. They don't need to use the rules of real-life football, you... Beep, beep. It's historical fiction. There's nothing wrong with ancient Romans in battle tanks. It's a kung fu film. They're supposed to use Western boxing and wrestling. Jeez, lighten up. And... And I think this is completely true. The people that say, nerds, 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 any movie, are the sort of, I don't know, what are they into? They're, in, they're going to be into a, like a broad range of things. But if it was anything that they cared about, hey, we're going to make a movie about that game where people kick balls around. It's called football, I think. Hmm. Soccer, whatever. <laughs> but in this one, the goal is an H-shaped goal. It's not the one with the net. Can you imagine if you made a movie like that? People would be up in arms and baying for blood, wouldn't they? <laughs> they would, they yeah. really would. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of... I don't know where to go with this because part of it, it plays into what I just think is wrong with films. I think lots of films are just really stupid and they don't need to be. But lots and lots of people seem to enjoy really dumb films. Yeah. So I don't really know where, and that's fine because I enjoy dumb stuff sometimes. But I don't know whether my criticism is artistic or more cultural. So I think this would be a better film if it was more hard science fiction and they tried to get these things right. Mm. And that's mostly what I want. It's not. It's an artistic criticism. It's not just sitting out there going, eh, eh, we want to see dinosaurs, accurately. Eh, 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 eh. I don't understand fiction, I want everything to be a documentary. <laughs> or however they, whatever they think we are, we're talking about. I want to see a film like that, and I don't think it would hurt the fiction, it would make it better. Yeah. Um, but Well, that's what, yeah, one of my friends, Orin Hess, It would be a less dumb thing. film, and people seem to like dumb films, so I don't know. You- well, well, you think like you know, like he was, Orin was talking about Avatar and how striking the beasts were in that because they were novel to the majority of the viewing public. Don't don't you think that they might it might actually be really in oh, this stupid? Oh, I don't want to start going down your awesome bro discussion route, but this idea that everyone says, oh, they would. I, th- I think feathers look lame on dinosaurs. They make them look lame. It's like. <laughs> well, whether they would or not didn't, that's what they that's what they look like. And um you know, a fuzzy tyrannosaur or you know, an accurately depicted dromaeosaur, are you really telling me that an audience isn't gonna see that and think 
that it's, you know, more interesting than the stupid grey scaly things, brown scaly things that we've had in the the JP, the other, other Jurassic Park movies. So, yeah, this uh, argument, uh, and also this goes to the continuity argument as well. This argument that they should be, they need to do this for continuity, or they need to do this because this is what people expect. Both yeah. of these are, I think, artistically bankrupt ideas. They're dumb. Yeah. You, <laughs> you're giving people what they expect is how you make rubbish. Yeah, uh, it's, it's technically wrong anyway, because as as has as I've said in many many Twitter exchanges and in other venues of Facebook and stuff, is in actual fact the consistent theme throughout the Jurassic Park universe. Okay, it started off in the book, and it's alluded to in the films, is that the animals are updated versions as they acquire more... You know, the reason that they said they plugged up the gaps with the DNA of other animals is because they didn't have the stuff. But they talk about they talk about releasing different versions of the dinosaurs. I mean, in one of the... I can't remember which one. Jurassic Park 3, the, the unflushable turd, whatever it's called, the, the really awful one... Is that the the dromaeosaurs in that look different from the other films because they've now got filaments, yeah. and they clearly have made some nod there to oh dear, okay, turns out they got they did have feathers after all. We shouldn't have used Jack Horner as an expert because he's an idiot. But um, <laughs> so <laughs> they, they um, they, you know about my T-shirt that I wore to Jurassic Park premiere. No. I must have told you I wore it. I designed a T-shirt. In 1993, that says scaly proto birds, no thanks. Feathering the theropods a matter of principle, and the, and it, the whole idea was why aren't we seeing feathery velociraptors instead of stupid scaly ones in Jurassic Park? Because because yes. I, I, I forgive me, listeners, if I have mentioned this before on the podcast, but uh, or if you've mentioned it, I don't know. But you know, I like reminding people that many people in the not well, okay, several people in the dinosaur community going back to the 1980s and even beforehand, was saying these things probably had feathers. And it was conservative, not, I don't want to be mean, but you know, it was conservative mainstream academics saying, no, 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 don't put feathers on them until you're absolutely sure. Whereas the argument that they should have feathers was always good. And now, what do you know? Yeah. How many feathered dinosaurs have we got now? So, so, <laughs> so <laughs> Take that, David Norman. Yeah, um, I was. Yeah, I was quite disappointed. I remember being disappointed that they didn't put feathers on the dromaeosaurs in the original Jurassic Park. However, back then, okay, this was not perfect, but it was at least the mainstream scientific view, right? Whereas now, the Jurassic yeah. World mainstream scientific view, chuck it out the window. Who cares? Yeah, who cares? Um, which is not. Oh, and as we say, we're not. I'm not actually angry at Jurassic World. I think the main thing I'm angry about is that we have to talk about it. Um, <laughs> we don't have to talk about it. We kind of do. We kind of do. Um, I think I could have happily ignored it. But um, because it impinges on our world so much and it's how people will be asking about it. You know, people that aren't all that interested in, aren't don't have a deep interest in dinosaurs will be asking about this film and it just seems like it's a we're not so much angry about it as just sort of vaguely disappointed i think it's more my uh disappointed is definitely yeah because again that's something that came up on the, the tweets people are why are you so critical and it's like, for christ's sake i'm not being critical i'm just just disappointed when they could have done so much yeah. why don't you make your own film scientists oh yeah yeah of course <laughs> so a movie that's got 
yeah, a budget greater than the GDP of many countries. I'll just, yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, and I would say many times the entirety of the budget for vertebrate paleontology. Indeed, yeah. So I really liked your piece. So go to John Conway's log and look at John's insightful uh, <laughs> what is it called? Why are, why are nerds mad? At, uh, because um, it's just, uh, yeah, you, it just summarises much of what we've said. But the main point being that, um, well, why why are you surprised that specialists are critical? You know, aren't you interested in seeing a view of reality that's meant to match reality <laughs> reality which yeah, yeah. No, no, i guess I, I i was sort of getting at the trivializing of this so yeah okay so you're very <clears throat> people think they can laugh at it because who cares what dinosaurs looked like but you know being ignorant of a whole bunch of stuff isn't shouldn't be a matter of pride right there's dinosaurs or anything else um and the fact that dinosaurs have actually undergone this radical transformation in the last 20, 30 years, which wasn't fully realized in the original Jurassic Park, is really quite interesting. And it, and it changes the way people think about what's been going on in the history of life on this planet. Well, um, and yeah. And like so I it said, is important. I mean, it's not directly practically important, but mo- most of what people are interested in isn't. Yeah, and a, a, co- a, common, com- a common response to complaints as well is for people to say, um, and again, I've got into many debates on twitter over this was um people saying don't you realize it's only fiction don't you think people can tell the difference between fact and fiction well i can tell you that as an educator of young people i lecture to students and as someone who interacts with you know like people in the media you know i've done radio shows and tv shows i can tell you that you know you know hey don't any one of us could say this that people really do build their view of reality based on what they've seen in movies, particularly with things that are not, spe- you know, that isn't their specialty. Like, you know, how many people are really going to bother reading dinosaur books and articles and stuff? So it does impact yeah. on how people imagine the There's world. sort of an assumption, and I think I make this too, when I'm watching a film about something where I don't know the realities at all. Like, let's say, military fiction, for example. I don't know what it's like to be in the army. Yeah. I don't know what the things are about. Um, I do think, I do start to internalise, well, that's what it's kind of like, because I I think, why would they change that? It turns Mm. out they change all sorts of things for no reason at all Mm. that you can make out. There's no dramatic advantage to it, it seems. They just change stuff, either because they don't care, they don't know, or they thought it was a good idea or whatever. Um, And lots of people internalise this stuff from films because I think they they vaguely have this notion, well, why would they change that? They would be just giving us vaguely accurate stuff. Sure, they probably change some things, but, you know, maybe not. So they look at something like Jurassic Park. They think maybe it has a scientific advisor. They, they know that the history of Jurassic Park has, has more tie-ins with science than most science fiction films. You know, it was the, the um, tie-in with the original Jurassic Park and the explosion of scientists in documentaries and stuff like this was... It was le- legitimised. Um, mm. So I think people will watch a new Jurassic Park film and vaguely internalise this stuff as this is what dinosaurs look like. Um, yeah, that we look like Chris Pratt, drive around on motorbikes and have trained giga velociraptors. Also, so. <laughs> I, yeah, the awesome bro thing. I'm sorry, I re- I'm starting to 
<laughs> lose it. I, I, people were wetting their pants over that <laughs> scene. And I, really, people? Are you eight years old? Are you all eight years old? You can't be, can you? <laughs> Train velociraptors on a motorcycle. Well, if we just put lasers on their heads, it'd be twice as good. <laughs> Maybe they do that at some point in the movie. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to be too rude because as I, say, I do enjoy stupid stuff too. So, um, <laughs> even if it had nothing to do with dinosaurs, as it wouldn't surprise most people that I would think this is a pretty dumb film anyway. Well, yeah. National but, Geographic, sorry, National right. Geographic asked me what I thought of the movie, what, you know, based on what I've seen in the trailer. And I was like, have you, have you seen Guardians of the Galaxy? No. Oh, okay. Well. Is that the one with Captain America in it? <laughs> uh, I know you're not kidding. That's the sad thing. Uh, it's a that's funny not, thing. That's not the no. one with Captain America. It's not the one with Captain America, John. Okay. Anyway, Chris Pratt is the main character in Guardians of the Galaxy. And, uh, and he's really good in it. Yeah. I think. So that's the th- one of the things I said. I said, well, I really liked him in Guardians of the Galaxy, so I'm hoping he's going to be really good again in Jurassic World. Having said that, the reason he's really good in Guardians of the Galaxy is because he's funny and he's got loads of really killer lines and stuff. There's loads of like, oh, there's loads of funny stuff. And from what it looks like in Jurassic World so far, there's not a lot of laughing. It's a lot of stern faces, furrowed brows. And- yeah, it didn't look like a very good funny film to me if it was if it looked hilarious i would be on board i would be on board with this as a comedy sort of comedy action film absolutely um i i'd I'd probably even sweep aside my worries about inaccurate dinosaurs affecting public perception just because it was funny but the fact that it's delivered like it's a serious thing with the ooh gmos Uh, anyway we should stop talking about that and talk about interstellar now we should okay so jurassic world coming to cinemas June next year, we'll probably talk about it again. But uh, yeah, a lot of media stuff going on there about that trailer. Oh my god, the new Star Wars trailer is out by now, but I'm going to resist the temptation to go and look at it. Hmm. Okay, the, right, the next podcast, Invasion of the Force or whatever it's called, oh. Force Invasion. I can't remember what it's called. Anyway, right, another sci-fi movie that we have to talk about, and I think we brought up last time. We've now both seen Interstellar. Hmm. Where do we start? Well, we start with massive spoilers because we're going to spoil oh, yeah, the yeah. entire film. Yeah, massive Absolutely. spoilers. Do not listen to this if you do not want the film spoiled. Okay, bye now. But for the rest of you that are still here... Yeah. Okay, well, do you want to go first? Because there's a couple of things I want to say really briefly. Really briefly. Okay. In tip- okay. podcast fashion. Yeah. Okay. Really, really liked it and loved those robots. Tars and Case. Loved the robots. They were awesome. I like the fact that you thought, well, how the hell are you... Yeah, a robot the shape of a door. Good one. Yeah, that's going to work, isn't it? But then it turns out, actually, no, they're pretty cool. They can run. They can pick things up. I liked it until Matthew McConaughey is floating in a chamber of books in his daughter's bedroom. And it was like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) And... From then on, oh, for the love of Christ, yeah, that just killed it for me. Okay, I it doesn't really surprise, well, this won't surprise people. I enjoyed it up until somewhat, <laughs> somewhat earlier than you. I think it started to fall apart once they got through the wormhole. 
Right. I think they started to ignore distance and time and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, sure, they had the nice little plot of time dilation. I thought that was a great sci-fi plot, and they should have relied on that a bit more rather than all the nonsense they did bring in in the end. But I think they needed a stronger plot after they went through the wormhole because it was unclear, and probably there are probably film nerds out there that will correct me, but it seemed like they could get to all these places relatively quickly. Um, they and the film lost this feeling of it taking immense amounts of time to get to places, which the earlier parts of the film had. Right, so they were they took years to get to Saturn, which it does. And but once they were through the wormhole, it was just like, oh, we got. Through the wormhole, and suddenly everything seemed closer. Didn't you also think that it was a bit lazy that when they reached the first of these possible possible colonization points, that oh, by the way, oh, oh we didn't mention, but we've already sent like three or four missions there beforehand. There's already people there. Mm. I thought we were seeing a movie about people going to new worlds and discovering entirely new things, but no, it turns out Mark Wahlberg or whatever is already there, and. Uh, yeah, I thought that was a bit lazy. Do you mean Matt Damon? Matt, Matt Damon. Yeah. Very similar to Mark Wahlberg, of course. <clears throat> and then they have a fight in, in, on this planet. The fight, you know, all this stuff I just thought was silly. I didn't, I didn't, yeah. I thought the, it started to, it started off, the space stuff was kind of majestic and felt like, oh, this is as close in a film as I'm going to get to space travel, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> in some ways. Mm-hmm. I saw it in a great big, um, not an IMAX, but a, you know, one of the big theaters with the vibrating seats and stuff that they have nowadays. It was it was great. I was really enjoying it up until they went to Saturn. But after that, it lost its um, space travel majesty type feeling it had, and started to drift into action film. Now, of course, the the giant wave on the planet with the huge waves going around it, that was very cool. And obviously that was the set piece of the film. Yeah, I like that. That was very cool. And that happened after the the wormhole. So there were good bits after the wormhole, but I felt like the structure of the film after the wormhole started to fall apart was too too action filmy, too easy to get around, not enough feeling of we're drifting through space for years to do this stuff. Mm. which is what made the early part of the film feel different to a lot of modern sci-fi films. Yeah. And I felt that's where it went. That's why it went downhill for me. Yeah, I can I can agree with that. I did I did kind of I did honestly think it was ruined by the magic at the end. Which okay, technically wasn't magic because it was meant to be what it was meant to be like evolved humans in the future that are in some way they've controlling space-time fourth dimension blah blah blah. blah, blah. But, and the fifth dimension is love. And <laughs> yeah, love can, can transcend time and space. Only love, That's, only love can transcend only. time and space because we know no love never runs out. Mm, Certainly, be my that. my personal experience, Darren. Hmm, mine too. <laughs> yes, but a cu- couple of other things that are worth mentioning. Okay, I liked the f- now. This is a Chris Nolan movie, right? So it's got that lot of that like bassy kind of like really quite good. I think music. But now I know for a fact this is not just me. But nobody talks about this. About half of the dialogue in a movie, I can't hear. I know people are talking, but I can't hear the words they're making. Mm. Okay, Matthew McConaughey, 
to my ears, he's got a fairly strong accent. I can understand him. But when there's the loud music in the background, there's loads of stuff I just didn't hear in that film. So what the hell was going on on Earth? Do you know what was going on? What was the problem? Why did they want to leave the planet? No, and I think this was actually one of the weaker points. I do know. I yeah. do know, but it's like when watching the movie, I didn't get it. I thought, okay, we're seeing Dust Bowl situation arise somewhere in the middle. Was it Texas? I don't know. Somewhere in America, the United States of America anyway. Um, it was blight. Yeah, yeah. Right? And I heard that word once. Now, without sounding too arrogant, I know that the, the huge majority of the public have never heard the word blight. That People don't know what blight is anymore. They might know that it means an infection, but they don't know it's a specific fungal thing, right? Mm. Okay, and yes, I don't know anything about fungi, so maybe there's a whole many of the species of blight, or maybe just one, I don't know, whatever. But that was the idea, that blight was killing off the certain food crops, so as a, as a consequence, corn is the only one left. So there's me thinking that it's climate that because it's hothouse future earth. No, it's blight. <laughs> Climate's not a problem. Blight, and I didn't get that. and Couldn't hear most of the stuff in the movie, but um, yeah, blight, tons of stuff. I just looked up blight. Uh, blight is a symptom, not a cause. So blight can be caused by bacteria or fungi okay. or number of things. All right. Um, so there's a blight epidemic killing our food crops. Yes. And I really, I also just want to say, I really liked the bit when um, Matthew McConaughey's character. When you watch a movie, do you come away remembering the, what the names of the characters are? Because I never do. No, no one ever does. Don't, oh, phew. I thought it was just me. No. Okay, so <laughs> no one so, ever knows the names of the characters. So, in films. so main movie dude, <laughs> yeah. Matthew McConaughey. I know his real name, of course. Um, he goes to his daughter's school, and there was that bit about the bit about the textbooks. I thought was quite good. When they said, why are you giving a, this is a non-federally approved textbook and it's got all this stuff yeah. about the moon landings. Moon we don't landings. like to talk about that anymore. I thought that was really good. That was good. fake, yeah. The moon landings yeah, were fake. That was, that was quite powerful stuff, I thought. Yeah, it had good stuff in it. I think the Blight um, plot was, science fiction-wise, quite weak. But I accepted it because I knew that they they needed a certain setup to make the rest of the film work. And I thought it is actually tricky to come up with the the right setup. So the setup had to be that um, the planet was going going to be unhabitable, uninhabitable at some point in the future, but in the meantime, things were sort of okay. There was still money around. They could still do stuff. Mm. Um, And that it wouldn't be clear that it was over, right? Because they wanted it to be... Some people just thought it was a bad idea to uh, to try doing anything, and why couldn't they just fix things on Earth? However, given that, even the world with blight is so much better than the worlds they were considering elsewhere, from what I could make out, right? So they were considering just planets with the right atoms and molecules on them. Mm. And the Earth, even with a blight that wipes out all the food crops is a million times better than some some planet with nothing on it. I mean, it's it was... Uh, I think that was quite a weak point. There is no way you would sacrifice the Earth at that... Leave, try and leave the Earth at that stage, that it would be a desperate um, scrabble to leave the Earth rather than cure blight. But, yes, absolutely yes, but didn't they make... Again, was it um, Matt Damon... Matt Damon's character, 
so bad space guy yeah he made the point wasn't he mr man or something dr man or was that another one Hmm. <laughs> that, that's the name no, he was, he was Dr. Man. Mr. Man Mr. Man and, yeah. Yeah, and there was a main female character and she was called Mrs. Lady hmm. and um, <laughs> the, the, the point was made that oh by the way what we didn't tell you is that this project is done for the future of our species yeah. and like not, not for you and your family um, yeah that, that was that was put in there somewhere I've forgotten exactly exactly how it was because wasn't it uh, Dr. Man's um yeah, uh, he he made the point that that we're we're able to consider the proximate concern to ourselves and our family and our friends, but we're not we're not you know you don't care about people on the other side of the planet or whatever. But we we need to change or that kind of thinking. Of the species is what he said. The future of the species, yeah, um, which yeah. is true. Which is true, but who cares? But that that so that doesn't fit with what they were trying to do in Interstellar. Because if you are trying to send people, if you're trying to safeguard the um, the you know, if you're trying to secure a future for a species, our species or any species, by you know ensuring that it's seeded onto another planet, well, you go and put some frozen eggs up there in storage and start a colony there or something. You don't send pioneers who are meant to be. Well, the pioneers were meant to be going there and wrecking wrecking the planet, right? You'd think that would have been better done with probes. Yeah. Like, because for the the, um, expense of getting a single person there, you could probably get dozens of probes. And they didn't seem to be gathering particularly interesting data. You know, they were just getting chemical analyses and stuff. They weren't... I I don't know what they were meant to be doing. And then sending back a little bit of information. Yeah, I don't know. The The plot was not as strong as it could have been. Mm. And the sci-fi was not as strong as it could have been. It was largely held up by some very, very good scenes. Mm. Um, and the general feel of the film. And also, in some ways, I think it's worth considering that um, it's in a different sort of class to a lot of other sci-fi films that we've talked about. Mm. Oh, it was in, it was in a thinking person's sci-fi film to a degree, yes, yes. more than lasers and tight shorts or whatever. Yeah, tight shorts. Tight shorts. <laughs> <laughs> Bikini so space women, of, yeah. I was thinking of yeah, bikini <laughs> space women. I was thinking of Guardians of the Galaxy because there's yeah. a comment in, yeah. in that film. But um, um, but I would say it was. Hmm, I think it was a cut above Godzilla, the 2014 version. <laughs> but I don't think it was a first-rate sci-fi film. Although it did, yeah. obviously, it had first-rate scenes in it. Yeah, the Wave yeah. Planet. That's really good. That was cool, and and Tars was cool. The robot and uh, yeah, the, but the, just the woo ruined it. Really ruined it for me. The magic ruined it. Yeah, so Which, I, I knew well, that was coming as well. A little bit. Yeah, it was obvious. It was because it was the only way they could get out. Right, it was the only way they could resolve the plot in a happy way, rather than just saying, "Damn it!" Right, <laughs> um, mm. that they had to be able to get him back. They had to be able to send messages to the right time. It was just so obvious it was all going to head that way. 
and that he was going to travel back in time. Mm. That's what that's what annoyed me. Once I saw that it was this sort of film, that they were going to have to have a happy ending and that there'd been this time dilation, I thought, they're going to have to get him back somehow. Yeah, no, I thought that. But I thought they were, I thought they were going to be even lamer and have him come back like when his kids were kids. Yeah, me too. I thought that was a, that was a possibility. Luckily, mm. they didn't do that. Yeah. Although I think, but I think the ending was weak enough that it kind of doesn't matter. Mm. It also also felt tacked on, right? And I wonder whether it was actually tacked on because of these focus group things they do, and everyone says, "I don't like that ending. Make a happy ending." Oh yeah, yeah, like the little sugar horrors effect. <laughs> yeah, interesting question. Um, I haven't. I've read a few interviews with uh, Nolan. I don't remember him mentioning that, but um, yeah, because they'd be quite. He'd be quite angry about that if you made like a hard sigh space exploration film that is no we want some we want some more love yeah. and can't he, come, can't he come back and be okay but he dies that's the whole point of the story no i don't mean the um the love thing was um tacked on i think that was integral to the plot and that ending <laughs> yeah, up in yeah. the in in the room and pushing the books through you could push books through but he couldn't talk to her or whatever god knows what that was about um I mean, when he ended up floating next to Saturn and he got to meet his daughter when she was old. At the end of the film. Not sure I remember that. I remember the bit where he... So they found him floating. He came out of the black hole. He was found floating near Saturn. They picked him up and put him on a space station. And she was an old lady. And she was an old lady. Yeah. Because somehow they'd managed to make all those space stations. Now, I know that in the plot that they, the NASA was meant to be building space stations. Somehow they were building space stations without knowing how they were going to work because they didn't have the equation or the data. Yeah. But once yeah, they did, they could just suddenly bang. Space that was station. never explained. What was that whole thing about about Michael Caine character, so old movie guy, mm. the, the, the whole thing about how he'd deliberately... Is he accidentally, deliberately, or deliberately, accidentally, or not knowingly, he'd like put brackets around the wrong bit of the equation or something, and it took McConaughey's daughter movie character to um, to come along and... and, and okay. Because it was so like, he knew that that was wrong. He knew that he'd got the equation wrong. Yeah, so here's what I think that was all about. Um, he was saying that if we can solve the the problems between quantum theory and relativity mm. right this is a fundamental the the last fundamental problem in physics in some ways that the uh, relativity and quantum mechanics don't mesh and um this is something everyone's working on this is what string theory is about this is what m theory is about this sort, sort of stuff he i think he was saying if we could solve this then we can build these and there's some sort of gravity problem in there. If we can solve this problem, then we can build we can build sort of launches for giant um, space stations and save everyone. And I'm working on this problem, and I'm working on it really hard. Mm-hmm. And I think the plot was that he had already solved the problem, but that it didn't help building space stations. But he thought, hmm, I can just pretend I'm working on the problem and keep everyone happy. You know, there's still hope, right? Whereas he'd already solved it, but it turns out that it wasn't a help anyway. So he thought, well, it's better to pretend that I'm still working on it. But the problem with that is that somehow in the end, 
oh, because that's why they had to go into the black hole. Just, it, it was very messy, that whole thing. And yes, as I say, uh, the details of the sci-fi plot, I, I do think could have been a lot better. All clearly designed to hang around the emotional plot rather than the science fiction driving the characters, hmm. I would say. Mm-hmm. So they think they had sort of a clear story arc and some of the main conflicts, like, was the the central lie of giving everyone hope. They, they'd thought of these things already and then they hung some science around that, science fiction around that um, premise, rather than thinking of the science fiction and then yeah. having the characters react to it. I think that sounds pretty fair. So I, I, it's still incredibly disappointing, and this this does seg back to what we said about Jurassic World. It's still annoying that you know we have these movies that are based on science and have some real science in them, but it's just not you know they just can't commit. They can't not put stupid stuff in it, or uh, or screw it up in some way. Yeah, it's rather baffling, and I can't really decide. Oh, it's this general thing that's ubiquitous in people that make decisions about media. The thing that they, the idea that they think that they know what works best. And yeah, just- I mean, a lot of them are quite conservative, so they think, well, I don't want to do something that could be a disaster. You know, you're spending yeah hundred million dollars on a film. You don't want to be the one that stuck your neck out on doing high, hard sci-fi and have it fail. And those of us who are more, well, liberal people or anyone that would be, bear in mind, you know, I'm thinking in terms of the United States, given that's the main generator of movies, um, anyone who's considered at all leftish, which will certainly include us, is not going to be there, even though those are, I don't know, are those the people that mostly watch movies? (laughs) I think it's fairly even, actually. Probably, well, is it across the board? Because it's like they're always trying not to do stuff that would... You can't... It seems like there are very few movies that, you know, for example, have like a staunch, say, you know, atheist point of view or something, or uh, that that sort of thing. It's like they're always afraid that... Well, atheism is out of fashion in America, that's for sure, well. (laughs) If it were never in fashion. Never in fashion. (laughs) No, but I think that movies... I don't know. I, 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 I would say the political bias in movies is... I, I don't know what it is. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not clear that it's one side or the other. It might be slightly leftish um, compared well, is, to the general population. Yeah, it, it is when you think of the movie makers, given that most, you know, excuse me for any crass generalizations here, but given the fact that the majority of educated people and the majority of writers and people in the arts tend to be left-leaning yeah. um, as, a, as a broad generalisation, then uh, you get the impression that there's often that feel in, but behind the idea of a movie, behind the development of an idea, behind the development of characters, but whether they can actually pull that through and, yeah, get through all the, the, yeah, the, the, the people that actually come up with the money in the studios and everything, who often are not that's that kind of people. Yeah, and also they don't. They, they, yeah, they don't. <laughs> they don't manage to make non-racist, non-sexist films, um, which I think is quite uh, ironic, given that the argument that Hollywood is so left-leaning that you'd think they mm. managed to make less sexist films than they do. But yeah, 
Um, it's not particularly relevant to Interstellar, which might have been a bit sexist, but certainly less so than most films we see. So who, who really cares? Well, um, there's some ma- main female characters in uh, Interstellar, didn't it? So indeed, and they were real characters. They were real characters as much yeah. as anyone else in it. So yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't think it was. It was very sexist. You'd probably pick it apart if you wanted to, but yeah, yeah there's not much point. Um, but so, yeah, go ahead. No, sorry, was there a but there? I was going to wrap it up. Okay, you want to wrap it up there? Well, no. Do you want to say but? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. But, <laughs> the but, female but, characters but, but. didn't suffer from Trinity syndrome. No, is, they didn't. Uh, uh, and I have just watched How to Train Your Dragon too, so I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Yeah. The idea that there are female characters who are, they're sort of like, you know, ninjas or warriors or whatever, but <laughs> they're... Step aside, think- there's a man here now. <laughs> <laughs> That's a mighty pretty kung fu you're doing, but we need real kung fu now. Yeah. But anyway, back to the story of me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> me, the man. <laughs> right. Um, so what would you give Interstellar out of ten? Um, you know what? I think it was two different films, and I'm going to give the the first half and the big scenes, I think I'm going to give it a solid 7.5 or an 8. Well, that's pretty high for you. But uh, given the the general pace and silliness of the plot and the <laughs> love can trans- <laughs> transcend time, space-time <laughs> and black holes and stuff... <laughs> Uh, ending. <laughs> um, I'm going to give that part of the film, I don't know, like a. Well, at least it was vaguely original, so I'll give it like a. S- 5.5? 5. 5.5. 5. You so, can't grade a movie as if it's two. I've mi- never seen two- a film that is so clearly two different films pasted together, so. Mm. I'm just going to have to in this case because I don't. I would never say don't see this film because it's dumb. I think you should definitely see this film for the scenes and the feel of it in the in the space travel and the coming up to Saturn and the looking at the um, the wormhole that's you can see through it and all that. It's all really good. It's interesting stuff. Definitely see it for that. But yes, of course, it has this ridiculous ending and themes in it which are stupid and so many little plot holes that <clears throat> well you can suspend your disbelief in a lot of the plot holes but yeah i mean there you go so overall given that it is one movie is if you're giving it seven out of ten which yeah. um i would have said well i would give it six out of ten because i'm mostly angry about the the magic at the end but but yeah i would say the same thing i i would definitely recommend people see it i already liked some of the sciencey, spacey stuff, but just I'm not joking. When when he was surrounded by books floating in space, I looked to I saw it with Will, my son. I was like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> Again, <laughs> so, <laughs> just ruined it, ruined it, ruined it, ruined it. And I considered standing up and walking out. Did you? Wow, made you really it. angry. I, I was all. I, I, yeah. See, I think you weren't as attuned to this movie as going off the rails as early as I was. So maybe I was like a bit more frog boiling in water, <laughs> as we know, as we know, uh, a myth. But you were, yeah, right. Um, that I was, I was thinking. Yeah, I was used to the temperature of the film by then, so it was, it was not such a ramp up for me. 
There was no break point. Uh, it was expected by that stage. I thought, okay. yeah, he's going to end up in this black hole and he's either going to go back into that room as a ghost or he's going to have some way of interacting with the room. Yeah, I did th- I, I did think the ghosty thing was going to come up, but I don't know. Maybe I think I watch movies with less <laughs> predictive power than you do. <laughs> I'm just... Okay, this is how this is how Darren watches a movie. Ah, oh, picture, picture. <laughs> Me, lucky, lucky. John is like now. B plus X equals Y, which means that in five minutes Y squared will. <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess no. I, I I watch them with a strong eye for tropes. What's this trope that they're giving me right now? You have a better eye for detail. You remember a lot more details about plots and stuff. But I'm much more aware that oh, we're going down this trope now. Oh, mm. we're heading. We're halfway along this trope. It's got to. It's got to play out the way this trope does. I would like to see a less tropey film. Mm. And Jurassic World comes to cinemas in <laughs> June 2015. Oh. Here's yeah. my prediction: It's going to yeah. be the worst one ever. I think it's going to be really bad. I think it's going to be worse than Jurassic Park 3. That's probably not possible. No, I think it is. I think it is going to be worse. I think it's going to be ridiculously highfalutin in there. Um, Like, ooh, mixing genes, don't play God, sort of. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> man was never meant to know yeah. this yeah um you combined with utterly ridiculously unpredictable scenes yeah yeah right we've got to wrap, go. it gotta there, wrap it up yeah time is yeah. running out yes okay okay so interstellar mm, well, you might yeah. you might want to go and watch it you might not well uh, you do you do want to go and watch it but yeah. maybe you should consider what stopping as soon as they leave <laughs> the the tidal wave planet. Mm. Mm. Okay. Right. So that was fun. Okay. Um, right. What do we need to say before we finish this show? What do you have to say for yourself? No, I say first, don't I? Well, I, say I can say I... first this time. I'm johnconway.co, where you can find links to my Twitters and my Facebooks. I've written about Jurassic World on my blog, which is log.johnconway.co. Um... Yeah, I think that's it. That's it yeah. for me. We write books and stuff, which Darren will tell you about. Yeah, so if you're interested in any of the stuff that we talk about on the Tetsu podcast, you might want to buy our books from our shop at Irregular Books. We published a book called All Yesterdays, which is on science and speculation in paleontology. It's one of the most famous books ever written. And we've also <laughs> published a book called The Biology, Evolution and Mythology of Hidden Animals, Volume 1, Cryptozoologicon. The Cryptozoologicon is about mystery animals. It's beautifully illustrated. Uh, mention of our good friend Memo Kozman, who contributed to it. Now, this is volume one and volume two. <laughs> very shortly. Very shortly. Tim Morris baiting once more. Um, and other books uh, in, of ours include Tetrabod Zoology Book One, Tetrabod Zoology Book Two, soon to appear. Oh, yeah, right. Um, and uh, I'm still working on my giant thing, giant book, that is. Um, history of vertebrates <laughs> oh, I've had to take a break obviously um, I tweet at you must unlearn what you have learned <laughs> at Tetzoo and uh, check out the blog Tetzbod Zoology currently hosted at Scientific American is there anything else thank okay. you to the people who sent us cash for questions thank you to the people who support us with your generous donations how many people now support us with regular donations a whole 30 or so. 
30 or so, which is exactly the same <laughs> ever <Yeah>. since. <laughs> well, no, no, it's gone up one. It goes up maybe one per podcast. It'd A be whole nice. exponential one. Mm. So it'd be um, nice, you know, if some of the 4,000 of you would consider a regular donation, which you do by yeah. doing, going to com, clicking donate to the podcast and clicking the make this donation recurring. And we don't care if that donation is very small. Plenty of people donate like a dollar or a pound or even yep. 70, 70p. That's fine. That's that's good. You're already doing better than what? Uh, you know, you're already one in a hundred. Better than 99% of people out there. Yeah. Scum. Reloading hmm. <laughs> <So, so, laughs> so, scum. Take that, <laughs> listeners. So, thanks for that. Think of Christmas. That's all I'll say. And, uh, and, and thanks also to the people that support me up. Patreon. There's a Tet Zoo Patreon site where you can see stuff in development. And you're working on your Patreon stuff, aren't you? Yep. This is how bad things are. We have to go and ask people for money. I feel like a street beggar. My little polystyrene cup. Please, just a penny, mister. (laughs) Right. Right, okay. That's it. That's the end of that chapter.